the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening and welcome to the History Show on RTE Radio 1. On this week's programme... Their skin turned blue because the blood was more or less coagulating in their veins. And the association with northeast and east winds was quite widely accepted. Superstitions surrounding diseases in the 17th and 18th centuries and how vampires were thought to be responsible for deadly epidemics. Also... There's an endless depth of value to the collection and this really brings about a relatability to the historical experience. We'll hear about the oral history collection of Unshin McKeown, which sheds light on Irish republicanism in the first half of the 20th century. Plus... When the volunteers then hit this stone, of course the explosion occurred. There was four of them involved and the four of them were injured. The Irish War of Independence in County Roscommon we'll hear a story of one man's family at the height of the conflict. But to begin this evening, in the 1700s up to the late 1800s, various contagious diseases ravaged Europe. The importance of washing your hands and wearing a mask wasn't understood back then, and vampires were sometimes thought to be the cause of the spread of deadly viruses and epidemics. When Dracula author Bram Stoker was a little boy, his mother Charlotte used to regale him with stories of her experience of the 1832 cholera epidemic in Sligo. Have a listen to this reading. It's taken from Charlotte Stoker's own eyewitness account, which she later wrote down at the behest of her son Bram. In the days of my early youth, the world was shaken with the dread of a new and terrible plague which was desolating all lands as it passed through them. And so regular was its march that men could tell where next it would appear and almost a day when it might be expected. It was the cholera, which for the first time appeared in Western Europe. One action I vividly remember. A poor traveller was taken ill on the roadside some miles from the town. And how did those Samaritans tend him? They dug a pit and with long poles pushed him living into it and covered him up quick, alive. Severely, like Sodom, did our city pay for such crimes. Trenches were now cut across the road in the direction in which the cholera was said to come concisely for the purpose of stopping all intercourse with the infected districts. No use. No use. That extract was read by Sligo actress Trasen Nealon. And with stories and folklore like that shaping the mind of the young Bram Stoker, it's no wonder he went on to write his gothic horror masterpiece. Well, Halloween is just around the corner, and due to the pandemic restrictions, it will, of course, be a very different occasion this year. One event taking place to celebrate All Hallows' Eve is the annual Big Scream Festival. It's happening from this Wednesday, the 28th, through to Halloween, the 31st of October. The North East Inner City Community Festival will be running a variety of online events for people of all ages. Dublin City Council Historian-in-Residence Mary Muldowney is presenting a talk called The Beast from the East, Dracula's Ancestors and Vampire Legends from Eastern Europe. And Mary is with us this evening. You're very welcome indeed to the History Show, Mary. Thank you, Miles. 
you've previously given talks on the inspirations behind Dracula and on the author Bram Stoker, who lived for a time in Dublin's north inner city. But this year, you've opted for a slightly different angle in light of the COVID situation. How are you adapting? Well, I suppose it was an obvious one in the sense of thinking about how people reacted to major pandemics in the past. And then I came across various things when I was looking at the background that were just so appealing, I couldn't ignore them. And this is where uh, the emphasis on some of the theories around the cause of vampirism and its relationship to pandemics came from. So they seem to have come from from Eastern Europe. How did the superstitions evolve and why the focus on Eastern Europe? Well, my suspicion is that there were enough connections with Eastern Europe and with the spread of stories about various pandemics that were coming from the East, which in a sort of generic way. And a lot of the studies then that were done in the 17th and 18th century that were academic approaches, although we probably find them fairly laughable now. But some of those came out of Poland, Russia and Germany and slowly spread across. But there was almost a kind of imaginative barrier when you got to uh, England and Ireland because it wasn't taken quite as seriously or in the same way. So I could say maybe the, the vampire uh, suggestions for the as the basis of the spread of disease, that metaphor had died out somewhat by the time it reached us. But of course, then uh, Stoker latched onto it again at the end of the 19th century when it was a bit safer to talk about such things. But these weren't just beliefs that were held by untutored peasants, for example, because academics, including, I think, Bram Stoker's own uncle, fed into the superstitions, Mm. didn't they? Stoker's uncle William was actually the chief medical officer in the Cork Fever Hospital, and he had done a survey of kind of feverish diseases and pandemics in the 1830s after the cholera, particularly after the cholera epidemic of 1832. And he had identified quite definitively that the pandemic had come from noxious airs coming from the east. So essentially, there was poison in the air that was being swept across the continent of Europe and coming in literally on the wind. And this was accepted as a logical explanation for why cholera in particular was so virulently contagious, because you were breathing it in. In fairness to the uninitiated, though, that kind of theory has an element of plausibility about it. But why did people associate cholera with vampires? Is there any logical explanation? Absolutely none at all, except that (laughs) cholera, uh, I mean, you did ask for a logical explanation. Cholera, a very severe case of cholera, and of course there were many, especially in 1832, the face kind of sunk. So somebody who was a cholera victim, uh, their skin turned blue because the blood was more or less coagulating in their veins. I apologise to anyone for whom this is a bit gruesome, but literally the face kind of 
of sunk and assumed a rather skull-like appearance. So you could see the association with that kind of death. And of course, Stoker had more or less been brought up on stories about the cholera epidemic from his mother and from the housekeeper where he lived. So that, you know, he was hearing about a lot, particularly of the Sligo infection. But the association with northeast and east winds was quite widely accepted. And even in Britain, where I was saying, especially in England, they were a little more advanced in terms of epidemiology and the cure for cholera more or less came from a scientist there at the end of the 19th century. But the combination really of all of these things, um, people were desperately looking for an explanation. And of course, the difficulty was that most of these diseases, including uh, typhus and typhoid, which did come from vampire bats emanating from India in the first place. So there was a kind of, you know, there were definite connections. All of these wouldn't have been understood in terms of contemporary understanding of medicine. So the obvious thing was to look for supernatural explanations. And was there an association between cholera and the undead, which is obviously part of the Dracula myth? Um, you yes, know, something to do yeah. around burial rituals, for example. Well, I mean, if there was a suspicion that somebody was a vampire, and this again, you can understand why a lot of, when a lot of people died, and if they're you know poor areas, the burial process might be quite rough, and it could look like a grave had been disturbed. Now, why people would have decided that the grave had been disturbed from inside it rather than outside it, that would have been because there do seem to have been a lot of documented cases, especially in the 17th and 18th century, where people had what was described as the symptoms of vampirism, that when their graves were opened up, the people still looked, the corpses looked alive, you know, that they looked relatively healthy and in some cases were actually uh, swimming in blood in the coffin. Now, whether that was related to another um, kind of disease, which we're not familiar with anymore, or that people just got carried away with the description and they grew legs across the continent, isn't really terribly clear at this stage, because, of course, the hysteria that followed on from something like this meant that the so-called investigations that were carried on by authorities, especially around the Eastern European countries, usually resulted in the destruction of the corpse. So there was no evidence then for trying to get a more scientific explanation. Um, now, we're going to have to be a bit ghoulish here because I, I want you to tell me what actually happened to the deceased if they were suspected of being a, a vampire. If anybody is of delicate disposition, they should probably stop their ears for about uh, 30 seconds or so. Well, you can always bear in mind that they were dead, so they might be <laughs> too much. But the thing was, the, the most obvious way that was what we see in the movies, you know, and various stories of the stake through the heart, which made sure that, you know, they actually were no longer, even if they were undead, that now they were dead, dead. Another way was to decapitate the corpse or in some cases to use the stake or stab the corpse 
decapitate the head and then burn the whole lot. So, you know, if you were being, to be sure, to be sure, that some of these methods or all of them could be used. And then in Romania, I came across some accounts that people considered that a cure for vampirism was, or at least a prevention, was if you took the ashes from the burning of the corpse and rubbed it on your skin, that would prevent you from being bitten by a vampire so you were safe for the future. Now, we heard there an account from Charlotte Stoker, Bram Stoker's mother, about a poor traveller stricken by cholera in 1832, Sligo, being buried alive horrifically. Um, Was she a big influence on his writing? Oh, I think she must have been because certainly, uh, I mean, Stoker wasn't born till well after this, but he clearly was familiar with the stories that were um, told in the household. And Stoker's mother had brought a woman with her who became the housekeeper in the house, who had was steeped in all of those local folk tales and stories. So between the combination of the horror of the cholera epidemic and then, you know, the telling of the stories, I think, you know, especially on a young child's imagination would have been quite vivid. But Stoker himself was a sickly child and a lot of the treatment that he got from his medical family, I mean, it wasn't just his Uncle William, there were others in the family who were doctors, he was regularly bled. So, you know, the obvious connection there with blood and and vampires is it's inescapable, really. And there was a great Victorian fear. I suppose it's universal, but it seems to have been particularly true in the case of the Victorians, a fear of being buried alive. And they took precautions, didn't they? Well, quite often, especially if you were wealthy enough to be getting a, you know, a fairly decent tomb, um, a bell would be incorporated into it, the tomb so that if you did wake up and find that you had been buried alive, at least you could draw people's attention to it. You know, and there were various other ways of making sure that people realised that you weren't actually a corpse. But a lot of this does tend to come back to cholera in particular because of the characteristics of the disease and the effect it had on a body that you, you know, you could be unconscious and almost not breathing, but would still actually be alive. Now, we associate cholera very much with this country. When we've been talking about the 1832 epidemic, there was another one in 1849 around the time or in the wake of the famine, very, very serious epidemics. Were they happening in isolation? Were these epidemics spreading across continents? They were definitely spreading across continents. I mean, the uh, the first we hear of the um, epidemic that hit us in 1832 would have been uh, coming up to Russia from India uh, in around 1817 or 18. That may well have been, you know, soldiers still around after the Napoleonic Wars. War often brought that kind of epidemic, at least, or 
pandemics eventually because uh, there were fluid populations moving across the continent. But it moved through Russia, across Poland, particularly through Germany, uh, eventually reaching uh, Britain in 1831 and then came into Dublin and Belfast in the early part of 1832. And by the summer and the autumn was really had taken, you know, was all over the country and some horrific outbreaks. And of course, not only was Stoker hearing the family stories, especially of the Sligo outbreak, but when he was a young adolescent, he would have been living in Buckingham Street, where, which was not too far away across the road almost, of a very poor slum area where the effect of cholera literally killed thousands. Now, there was a lot of interest, obviously, in vampires. And you, in your research, I think, have come across some publications you would necessarily associate with an interest in vampires. Publications jumping on the bandwagon. One of them was a French fashion magazine, which seems really odd. It is, isn't it? Yeah. This was about 1721, I think it came out. And it was called Mercure Galant. And it was entirely devoted to clothes for the most part. But suddenly there's this article identifying the characteristics of vampires. But it's also a time when, you know, it, there were a lot of studies being done. There was even consultation of, uh, I think it was Pope Benedict the 14th and various, you know, eminent characters like that who were being asked for their help in dealing with outbreaks of vampirism. And they were taken seriously. Authorities, local authorities would, would have sent out teams to investigate. Usually what happened would be that the rumour would start around a possibly relatively isolated rural village or somewhere like that where you can imagine it developing. But, I mean, in in many cases, the investigating group would be accompanied by an executioner. So just in case they did have, uh, they found the actual evidence, well, then they'd be ready to chop off the head of the offending corpse. By the time Stoker published Dracula, which was in 1897, were people as scared of diseases like cholera as they had been? No, because by then, you know, the main cure really was cleaning up the water. And public sanitation, even, you know, in in cities that still had a lot of such problems like Dublin, but uh, in London in particular, there was a doctor called John Snow who identified the cause of the bacteria, which was this uh, bacillus floating in the water. And uh, he invented a pump that could be used for you know, public distribution of water, because, of course, an awful lot of poor people would certainly wouldn't have had household sanitation. They would have had to go out and uh, pump water from a local pump into buckets or whatever. So they were bringing the diseases home with them. When I think it was 1897, when Dracula was finally published, by then it was sort of a free song about what might have been, but nobody was taking it as serious as they might have done you know, 50 years previously. Do you expect that we have a modern day Bram Stoker sitting down at the moment to write about the current pandemic? 
Oh, I imagine so. Yes, <laughs> I, I mean it, it's just begging to be written about. So uh, how it's treated, we'll we'll have to wait and see. But uh, I mean, in recent years, there obviously has been an awareness that we were likely to be attacked. I mean, some fairly unlikely people, in some ways. I think Bill Gates predicted it about ten years ago that you know a microbe would be the most dangerous thing that could get to us because. It's not obvious in coming in and its attack. So, you know, there have been movies, there have been books all about contagion. And it, it is an obvious subject for fiction at the very least. But, of course, there will also be lots of learned stuff as well. Mary Muldowney, thanks for joining us this evening. Mary will be talking more about superstitions surrounding vampires and viruses as part of the Big Scream Halloween Community Festival, which starts this Wednesday. Mary's online talk is at 12 noon on Wednesday. See bigscream.ie for details. That Charlotte Stoker account of the 1832 cholera epidemic in Sligo will also feature in this free festival. Another event we wanted to highlight takes place this Thursday evening the 29th of October, when uh, Bram Stoker's great-grandnephew, Dacre Stoker, will be hosting a live Zoom presentation in which he will give an intimate portrait of Dracula and his enduring appeal in popular culture over the past century. Very interesting, very scary, I have no doubt. You'll find details at bigscream.ie. We'll put that link as well as the Zoom link for the Dacre Stoker talk on our website. The History Show with Maz Dungan on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back to The History Show on RTE Radio 1. We're going to hear now about an oral history collection which sheds light on Irish republicanism from the War of Independence right up to the 1940s. It's a series of over 100 taped interviews conducted by Unshin McKeown, who, over the course of three decades, travelled the country recording interviews with former Republicans. These interviews form the basis of three books. First, we'll hear the voice of the man himself, Unshin McKeown, and how he began one of his many interviews. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou amongst women, etc., 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 August the 11th, 1992, and I'm talking here to Derry Kelleher of Cork. Go ahead, Derry, with uh, your random thoughts. Well, my name actually is Jeremiah Kelleher. I follow the Cork custom of calling myself either Derry or Maya. Anshin McKeown there, beginning an interview with Jeremiah Kelleher. I'm joined now by oral historian and author, Dr. Thomas McConmara, who has spent the last two years reviewing and analysing this material. Thomas, tell us first of all, who was Unshin McKeown and how did he come to record such a huge collection of interviews? Yeah, I think that the background of Unshin McKeown is really important to his role in undertaking this project of recording 102 people across the country in the 1970s and 1980s. So he's born in 1920 in Pomeroy in County Tyrone into a strongly Republican family. His own father, Maliki McCone, had been interned in the Argenta, in the prison ship uh, in the north of Ireland. His mother, Catherine, was a very strongly Republican woman. All of her children's second names were drawn from the leaders of the Easter Rising. His own second name was Rahala, Unshin Rahala McGowan after the O'Rahali. So he obviously was born into that type of environment which would lead him to gravitate in that direction, I suppose. And he did so in 1940. He was arrested under the 
the new powers that the government had brought in and was in, jailed for a year in Arbor Hill before being moved to the current internment camp, which was the typical route for Republicans during that period. And that's really critical because of his direct involvement in the Republican movement in the early 1940s and his association with those men, both in Arbor Hill and in the current internment camp, when he went about documenting that history decades later, he was able to get access to people who, you know, in many ways had turned their back on the state as it was, because they had continued to be active IRA men and Republican women throughout the 30s, 40s and even into the 50s. So you had people here who had refused to speak, for example, to the Bureau of Military History, but Unchin was able to get access to those people. So his Republican background, his you know deep interest in history, his very strong intellect in that regard was really critical, as was his kind of natural skills, which are borne out. So all of that coming together made him probably one of the very few people who during that time would be able to get access to the types of people that he did and able to engineer the disclosures that he did within the recordings. Now, some of the material is contained in a number of books. Survivors is probably the best known of those. I've read Survivors. There's some very interesting, very significant material in there. But you get a sense from the tapes that there's a kind of an element of folksiness about it that doesn't necessarily come across in the accounts, in the written accounts of or the transcripts, if you like, of those interviews. What was it like to listen through all of those interviews? Uh, you know, Miles, it was really incredible because uh, as an oral historian myself, obviously, you can sometimes see yourself as the interviewer. And, you know, there's times you're thinking, God, that's an incredible question or it's a, a you know, an incredible revelation that you're you're listening to. Sometimes you're, you're urging him to ask another question that you can see is worth asking when you're listening back. But it was really incredible. I mean, you take Nora Connolly O'Brien, the daughter of James Connolly, you know, was recorded a number of times by Unchin as part of this project. And I mean, that's really really critical because we know so much about James Connolly and of course we know about Nora and her role in 1916 but to get the human revelations that sometimes didn't come out in the books as you quite rightly point out because Unchin was very determined to capture as much historical information and to piece together the different experiences that made up the historical periods he was exploring but maybe what he didn't put as much focus on sometimes was the human experiences of those times, the emotions involved in, in all of that experience. But in, in some cases, it came out anyway. And you have Nora Connolly O'Brien talking about being a child. And she's the child of James Connolly in the early 1900s. And, you know, only Nora Connolly O'Brien could narrate that experience. So it was really valuable. That didn't appear in the book. But it is of tremendous value to our broader understanding of what that period was like through the experiences of some of the key people in modern Irish history. And that's right across the collection. You know, there, there are insights that we don't necessarily see in the books. And that's understandable because I know myself, when you put together a big collection of memory and then you try and piece together a book based on that, you're necessarily going to leave out vast amounts of material because it's just not possible to put a full transcription of every interview into your book. So there is so much richness and depth 
to the recordings that couldn't be expressed in the book. And it was brilliant that Nuada Unchinson, you know, decided back in 2018 to donate the material to the military archives. And the military archives have been really determined to, to, I suppose, bring about as much awareness of the collection as possible. And that's what why I was commissioned to undertake the listening. But God, Miles, I mean, I wouldn't tell them too loudly, but I would have probably paid to, to listen to these because it was just an incredible experience. And it was something I had to take a lot of time at because... Often in memory, you know, there's little subtle references and, you know, they wouldn't be, the significance of them wouldn't be immediately apparent. So it took very deep and very careful and measured listening to try and decipher what was being discussed, what was being explored and what might be the significance of a reference that mightn't on the face of it appear all that uh, hugely important. Okay, let's illustrate, I think, what you're talking about, because we're going to hear a clip from his interview with Nora Connolly O'Brien, well-known Republican activist and writer. Her thoughts, her memories have been frequently recorded. We'd have seen uh, the old black and white clips on television. But what you get here is something very, very different. She talks in this extract about a Christmas in her childhood, uh, early 1900s. Her mother arrives home from shopping with a leg of pork for Christmas dinner. She's also brought sheets of tissue paper to decorate the house. And poignantly, uh, Nora Connolly O'Brien describes how she misses her father, James Connolly, who was away in the USA at the time. At Christmas time, I remember her coming in one day father was in the States at the time, and he said he thought he'd be home for Christmas. And Mama came in from her shopping. Pork was cheap in those days. She got half a leg of pork for her Christmas dinner. And she had made a plum pudding. She had made it on early on in the day. When she had it all mixed up, she said, Come now, you must all stir this and make a wish. So we all stirred it and made a wish and kept very secretive about her wish, except... I said to Mona, I wish Daddy'd be home. She said, I did too. Christmas Eve came and their stockings were hung up on the mantelpiece and Daddy hadn't arrived home. The voice there of Nora Connolly O'Brien recalling a Christmas round about 1902-1903 and wishing that her daddy, James Connolly, as we knew him, would come home for Christmas. Um, that's, Tomás, just one example of the value of these oral history recordings, a scene from childhood that might not make it into a, a history book, but one that really, really humanises all of the people involved, including, I suppose, in a strange way, the absent James Connolly himself. Oh, there's no question. I mean, the, the absent father, you know, is, is a theme we often consider in, in present times and in history. But because of his commitment to revolution, to socialism, he was in America for considerable periods in the early 1900s. And he actually wrote a poem at one point during Christmas. I wasn't able to, to clarify exactly what year Nora Connolly, Nora was talking about, but he wrote a poem about his yearning to be at home for Christmas from the other side of the Atlantic. So, again, you, you get a sense sometimes, and I've, we've talked before about this, Miles, that, that this really brings about a relatability to the historical experience because sometimes we hear about Connolly or Pierce or, or all of these characters and you know they're seen as, as historical figures but we need to look beneath that to people to their families and to the experiences and again that comes out in a tape and I'm just drawn to one particular example just to, just to further illustrate that Mae Dalig down in Kerry was interviewed a number of times and she was the sister of Charlie Daly who was executed in Donegal during the, the Civil War and she recalls being again a young girl Immediately after that execution, or at least in the months afterward, when her family, who had taken the anti-Republican side, 
uh, were being raided by the Free State Army and there were shots being fired around the house. And she recalled being inside, kneeling down, praying to her brother Charlie, who had been executed, that the Republicans who were at that moment hiding out in a dugout in, in an adjacent field wouldn't be found by the Free State. And again, that I think is such a just a deeply human experience and brings you right to the real emotion of of a raid, of a civil war, of a division, of a memory of her brother who'd been executed. All of the tragedy is bound up sometimes in that just little moment of a young girl praying to her executed brother that his comrades would be safe uh, in the field nearby. Now, McKeown drew on those interviews, as uh, as I said, for books like Survivors, published in 1980. That's about the struggle for Irish independence. It's about the period up to the end of uh, the middle to the end of 1921. Um, tell us about Dan Gleeson, one of the men featured in that book. Tell us about that interview that you've listened to. Yeah, again, Dan is a really interesting example because, again, he would have had a Republican tradition in his family in Nina and County Tipperary, where he was from. So often the recording might centre in on the individual's experience at a particular time. But within the broader discussion, you get a sense of their background, of their, their lineage. And you also get a sense even after the, over the decades that followed. This is a man who was, you know, as a teenager active in the War of Independence in North Tipperary, but was in 1957 interned for four months and received back to bonfires in in Nina. So, you know, you're getting decades of experience within the one recording and Dan was well able to narrate that. And in his uh, recollection of the War of Independence, he gives a really good insight into the, you know, the daily experience and the fact that it was a daily experience and a constant experience, particularly in 1920. But another element of the value to Dan Gleeson you know, and to all of them is even at a linguistic level, Miles, you know, Dan would speak in, in a certain way and in a certain vernacular that has its own value. And when you piece that together with 102 other voices from all over the country, from down, uh, you know, down to Kerry, to Nina, as in the case of Dan Leeson, there's a another hidden value to them. But certainly he was able to narrate the experience of the War of Independence with tremendous effect. And we're going to hear that voice, the voice of Dan Gleeson in his interview with McKeown. He reflects on the events of 1920. Well, I will say this in all fairness now, like, during 1920, I'd say, all along that period in the winter and period of 1920, there was hardly a night but we were out. Yeah. Block yeah. and row with all yeah. kinds of activity. Very active, yeah. It was nearly full time. You got home and you tried to have a, mm. a week's sleep and mm. you had tried to do something. But that was the story, like, of the tan wall. Yeah. And uh, I have this to say, like, that all the fellas that I came in contact with, I pay them great tribute because, with very few exceptions, they didn't know what fear was. Yeah. The, you know, the equipment mm. and the kind of an enemy they were dealing with. Yeah. They all believed that there was nothing... It was victory and nothing less. Yeah. And yeah. that we were winning and going to win. There was no other way, like. Yeah. There was no despondency. Yeah. And when someone was killed, when it was mm. a sacrifice, mm. of course, but it didn't know. We must yeah. go on, put greater, more determination yeah. to go on with the struggle yeah. and to win. Dan Gleeson there, speaking to Unshin McKeown, reflecting on the War of Independence and paying tribute to the spirit of his comrades. 
Another one of McKeown's historical publications was the IRA in the twilight years. So that tells a very different story, the story of the IRA between the period 1923 to 1948, and once again draws heavily on the recorded first-hand testimony of those who lived it, taken from those tapes. Uh, the most important aspect of the testimony McKeown recorded is memories of internment in the emergency. Would you tell us a little bit about some of those tapes that you've listened to? Sure, yeah. And I think it's it's probably really where he comes to life as an interviewer because, you know, he can relate directly to the experience because he himself was interned for a period of time in Arbor Hill first and then in, in the internment camp. But we often maybe underestimate the significance of that time in terms of political activism and its battle against the state because we often traditionally, of course, associate the IRA with which confronting the British Empire or British occupation. But I would think it, it, it evolved into a situation where in the late 1930s and early 1940s in particular, the IRA maybe became more focused on the state as its enemy. And certainly the state saw the IRA as, as one of its enemies as well. So he documented that experience from you know a significant number of former activists and gave a really critical insight into the diversity of opinion within the internment camp, for example, you know, the, even the makeup of the, the Republicans who were interned, because you had a number of Protestants who were interned. There's a famous example given of a, of a young Protestant who comes into the internment camp in the Curra, and he's a, he asks the, the staff, where should he go? And he's told, well, if you want to go and learn how to make a bomb, you go to Hut A, and if you want to become a communist, you can go to Hut B, and if you want to learn the Irish language, off you go to Hut C, and so on and so on. And it actually ringed through because there was such a diversity of, of opinion and outlook within the makeup of the entire Republican movement, which in some ways could be a good thing, but it led to division. The camp itself was divided between those who supported Liam Lady and those who supported Pierce Kelly. And again, we get that experience. We get the shooting of Barney Casey. Many of the people witnessed it. I mean, this was, uh, you know, a really critical moment in that time. The burning of the internment camp, or at least parts of the internment camp by the internees, is documented to tremendous effect. But also what is happening outside of that at that time is also documented. This is at a time immediately after you know, the IRA's bombing campaign in, in England, and many of the people speaking were involved in that campaign, either peripherally and some even directly involved. So all of that, the raid on the magazine fort in, on the 23rd of December 1939, you know, a number of participants are speaking about it. Also, other IRA men who remembered the moment when they heard about the raid are documenting that experience. So you're, you're not only getting an insight into that time, but you're getting an insight into how significant that time actually was. And at a time when you know World War II is obviously raging, the government in the state took the decision to enact emergency powers, and that gave them the, the method of arresting and interning over 1,000 Republicans. So again, without McOwen's access and his insight that he generated, you know, a lot of that period would be less understood than it might be with his material. Now, we're going to hear a clip of his conversation with a man called Tony McInerney. Tell us a bit about him. Yeah, Tony's a really interesting character. He um, had what was described as a fairly bohemian lifestyle. J.P. Dunleavy wrote a novel called The Ginger Man. And Tony McInerney is actually 
the basis for the character Tony Malarkey in that novel. You're talking about the 1970s and 1980s, and many of them are reflecting back, and some of them you can hear in their voice, they're still as committed as ever. Others may have developed a different view on that period, but, you know, he remarks in the piece that I think we're, we're about to play, Miles, about the state of the internment camp when he arrived into it, how dishevelled the men had become, and the conditions were fairly poor, and the, there was a tremendous tension between the internees and, and the staff in the camp, but he was able to reflect back and to really consider what in the name of God had he, had he gotten himself in for when he, when he arrived into the internment camp the first time. Okay, let's hear from former IRA volunteer Tony McInerney, who's being interviewed by Unshin McKeown about his internment in the Curra camp. What were your first impressions when you reached the Curra? You know, you went down a hill and yes. there was the big camp spread out in front of you with uh, about 500 men in it. Shock. Uh, shock that human beings could degenerate in this state of awful clothing and torn and shabby and boots hanging off of them. And, Martin know, Henry's and grey shirts. Uh, yes. And, mm. and, and long beards. Yeah. And you thought, what, what an uncivilized bunch I'm getting into. Is that what you felt? Yes. Well, I suppose anybody being sent to a gulag for mm-hmm. the first time mm-hmm. uh, must experience a sense of shock. Yeah. Actually, when you when you sit down, I became one of them. <laughs> Tony McInerney there describing conditions in the Curra camp to Unshin McKeown. And all the extracts, by the way, that we've been hearing from his collection come to us courtesy of the military archives. And by the way, two of McKeown's books, Survivors and the IRA in the Twilight Years, 1923 to 1948, can be accessed and downloaded from the military archives website. Wonderful, wonderful website. And uh, another book, Harry, his biography of Republican Harry White, will follow later in the year. Um, Tomás, what about all these audio interviews that we've been listening to. Are there any plans to digitise them? They've been digitised to a fairly large extent and what I've been doing is, in addition to listening back to the material, is creating reports on each of the interviews so that you can navigate through the interviews according to the subjects that you might like to explore. So, for example, if you're looking to just listen to pieces that relate to the raid in the magazine fort, then you'll be able to do that through the material that I have actually created. So what the military archives and Commandant Daniel Iotis and Noel Grothier are really determined is to, you know, not only make this material available, but to make it available in a way that optimises engagement and makes it as easy as possible for people to engage in the material. So that work has been done, you know, there's a period of, of work to be done in terms of fully making that available to the public through the, the website, Miles but certainly that is the work that has been in progress for the last two years has been about trying to get the material available to the public Harry is the last collection I'm just about finished going through that collection in itself so certainly I would say by the end of 2020 we we will have all that material available on the Military Archives website it's something I definitely am determined to to produce a a book on at some point you know because the collection itself has a value as, as we've kind of illustrated beyond the books that have been produced on their basis You know, like all collections of memory, it has this value that has an ability to provide insights to people coming at a collection from various different points of view. And, you know, we only can do that if it's available. And something I feel very strongly about as an oral historian, that there are so many collections throughout the country that, you know, were undertaken, spent huge amount of time and effort and unfortunately for various reasons, they don't become available to the public. Um, so, you know, Nua the Macon and his family, Nua the Unchin son and his family deserve great credit 
in presenting the material to the military archives and the military archives is our credit for putting so much effort into making them available and, and shining a light on their value for, for the general public. Well, no better man to be going through this material than yourself, oral historian par excellence. You've been documenting and recording social memory of the revolutionary period since you were a teenager. Uh, so well done on the work on the Unshin McKeown collection. Dr. Thomas Mokkonmara, thanks for joining us this evening to talk about that collection and to highlight the value of oral history from the revolutionary period. The History Show with Maz Dungan on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. Well, we've just been hearing stories of Irish republicanism in the first half of the 20th century and extracts from oral history recordings where those stories are told by the people who lived through the events. Now we're going to hear an example of inherited memory, memory passed down from generation to generation and complemented by local historical research. Our producer, Lorcan Clancy, visited County Roscommon and met Tommy Murray, who has researched his own family history during the Irish War of Independence. My name is Tommy Murray. I have worked in education for most of my life. I'm long retired now and enjoying retirement. And I worked as a general subjects teacher, first a guidance counsellor for a number of years, and then as adult education officer for County Roscommon. Both sides of Tommy Murray's family played a role in the Irish War of Independence and there's one story in particular that illustrates their involvement. So this is a, an incident that took place on the road between Roscommon Town and Lanesborough. He told me about a party of volunteers who were digging up the roads to obstruct the movements of the Crown forces. On the 11th of May 1921, when the War of Independence had really hotted up and got very rough and digging the road and making a trench was part of the tactics, disrupting communications and work like that the volunteers were involved in. When the trench was filled in again that evening, the volunteers proceeded to dig up the road again. But what they weren't aware of was that the Crown Forces had planted a, a mills bomb with a stone on top to keep the pin in place and to keep the striking pin, you know, from exploding the bomb. But when the volunteers then hit this stone, of course the explosion occurred and there was four of them involved and the four of them were injured. There were a number of volunteers on lookout on the road between Clunty Mullen and Roscommon and out towards Lanesborough and indeed one of them was my father and he heard the explosion and he guessed what had happened. The wounded men were brought to the island of Inchena on Loch Ree on the Shannon just a few miles from where the explosion took place. An old man called Paddy McDermott well I suppose he was a young man then rowed them out in the boat to Inchena Island and there they were nursed and there were three families living on the island at the time the Shays and the Killians and the Connertons. My grandmother was a Connerton from Enchena, and therefore there's a very close connection between the, the Connerton family of Enchena and myself. The connection with the island doesn't end there. Tommy's other grandmother, a nurse and prominent local Cumann the Mon member, was one of a number of women brought to the island to look after the wounded men. Her name was Bridget Farrell, her married name. Her maiden name was Bridget McNally. My grandmother, on my mother's side, from, if you like, 
the Linster side of the Shannon. And she used to be brought in and out in a boat at night. And on one occasion, it was a very windy night, a storm blowing up. And when she was getting out of the boat on the uh, Longford shore, a gust of wind slapped the front of the boat against her. And she was expecting a child. And she lost the child as a result of that. So she always claimed that it was a little martyr for Ireland. Uh, she nursed the injured because she was a nurse. She used to be brought to various places to nurse injured. And my father, that particular day, he was on lookout. Many years later, Jim Murray, my father was to marry a daughter of hers, which was quite a coincidence. Three of the four injured volunteers mostly recovered after a few weeks. And the fourth man, who wasn't too badly injured at all, suddenly got ill and died within two weeks of the incident. And what had happened was the eyelets of his boots were made of lead and they were blown into his skin. But it didn't regard it as a serious injury at all. But blood poisoning set in from the lead and he died. The body of this man, John Scally, was brought to the parish of Kiltevan, Which was only just about a mile from the island, really. And he was secretly buried in Kiltevan, And they did such a good job on his burial that the British forces, who were going round searching the local graveyards because they had seen the amount of blood that was lost at the scene, and for days and days they kept searching. And they did such a good job on burying John Scally that they never found the grave. And then, years later, after the truce and the Civil War, he was reinterred in his own family plot out near Lanesborough on the Roscommon side in a place called Clontuskert. And uh, my father told me that it was a beautiful hot day in July and they formed a guard of honour around the grave and stood at attention while he was being exhumed, if you like. And that took about an hour and a half, and then they walked beside the coffin all the way to Clontuskert, which would be, you know, eight or nine miles, and uh, stood to in a guard of honour there while the burial took place. He said it was a, a big effort in stamina to do that, but he remembers that incident very well. So that's a little bit about the story of the Clunty Mullen Mills bomb explosion. That was Tommy Murray there, sharing that family story from the Irish War of Independence in County Roscommon. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, for me, Miles Dungan and producer Logan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.